0: So welcome to our podcast this afternoon. We're going to be sharing with you some of the highlights from our workshop at the Movement is Life 2021 caucus entitled From Surviving to Thriving in the Face of Micro, Macro and Atomic Aggressions. Michelle I am a hospital administrator down in Jacksonville, Florida for Mayo Clinic, and a member of the Movement is Life Executive um, Committee. And I'm pleased today to uh, host this podcast on behalf of Movement is Life. We're going to focus on a workshop that we did at our 2021 caucus entitled From Striving to Thriving, especially in the era of micro, macro, and atomic aggressions. And And I have three of our presenters from our workshop joining us for this conversation this afternoon. And I would like to invite each of them uh, to introduce themselves, starting with Mr. Frank McClellan.
1: My name is uh, Frank McClellan. Thank you, Michelle. Very happy to be here. I'm a professor of law emeritus at Temple University and a member of the Executive and Steering Committee of Movement is Life.
2: Hi, I'm Sarah Wenger. I'm a professor at Drexel University of Physical Therapy, and I also provide pro bono PT services at FQHC in North Philadelphia.
3: Hello, I'm Christina Jimenez. I'm a professor of Latin American history at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and I'm also a regular presenter on equity, diversity, and inclusion issues. Mm-hmm. So I'm really happy to be here.
0: Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. And so I thank each one of you for coming together this afternoon to hold this conversation. You know, this has been an unprecedented year for all of us, and unprecedented in terms of certainly COVID, but the very bright, bright light that it has shown on health care inequities and, and health disparities. So that's our, our space right Um, so we've been dealing with this what since 2012 uh, for movement is life and now thankfully we have a lot of other voices that feel as passionate about this as as we do but we wanted to step back a little bit in this workshop and think about you know um being on the on the front end of healthcare um, disparities as a patient uh, that's certainly distressing and stressful um, certainly when you add on top of that a pandemic and all of the other social um, issues that we've had social justice issues that we've had over the past year so it really really calls us to think through what can we do as individually as individuals and collectively um, to to uh, to, to to create resilience um, in ourselves and in our, our communities. So how do we combat some of these transgressions, some of these stressors, whether they are micro, macro, or atomic aggressions? It's all a matter of scale and impact, right, and how severe the, the hurt is um, when you look at that spectrum of transgressions. So our workshop just tried to elaborate a little bit um, and illuminate and highlight um, some of those issues from a legal perspective and legal remedies to transgressions to what are the things that we can each do as individuals um, in taking care of ourselves when we are the recipient and on the end of those types of transgressions. So that takes us to uh, my first question. Uh, what are some of the reasons why this subject is so important to you personally and from your perspective um, in the work that you do as an attorney, um, as a health care provider, as an educator. So how does this resonate with you? Why is it so important uh, to have this conversation and to elevate the conversation? Maybe, Frank, we could start with you. One
1: matter that became real clear as a result of the pandemic was that we were experiencing the pandemic covid differently depending upon our socioeconomic status, where we lived, uh, racial status, etc. We started introducing new terms into the vocabulary, like essential workers, which meant that Mm. they were the people who had to go out and Mm. confront the virus in order to to do their job, and really to live, uh, because they weren't being paid unless they uh, appeared and, and, and performed. And other people who were not touched at all, except what they considered a positive way, and many of us, for example, in academia, um, were able to continue doing our jobs, but we didn't have to leave our home. Um, We could do it remotely. Uh, And there's all the the spectrum in between. So given the fact that uh, we're experiencing it differently and it was exposed, I, I think about in many ways like Hurricane Katrina, where all of a sudden you had to look at what people were doing and how they were living. Because I kept asking myself, well, why did they just leave? And they, they didn't have cars. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same thing with respect to Katrina. So I've always been interested in using my professional skills, whether or not it was in training, whether or not it was um, as a lawyer or as an educator to try and see if I could make life better for people in the community that I, I have an opportunity to make things better. So that's why it's important to me.
2: Thank you. And this is Sarah. I think my perspective really comes from a patient care perspective where I treat a primarily underserved population of people, and I am constantly seeing my patients come in sort of not well cared for. They haven't been heard. Their needs have not been met by the health care system. Sometimes that has to do with access, but even when they have access that they're going in and I'm listening to the advice that they're receiving, I'm listening to what they tell me and the vi- advice they receive, and it doesn't fit. You know, they're not getting... What would be considered the standard of care. They're not getting the time and attention and education that they need to be able to take care of themselves. And that's, I would say, an atomic aggression. And I feel like giving patients tools to deal with those transgressions of the medical system is important. And then also... Being able to, I mean, in my role as a professor, being able to better equip the healthcare force to um, address patients who are underserved and patients who show up with a lot of complexity and show up who are under a lot of stressors. Um, to be able to approach those patients more skillfully and to provide higher quality care. And I have to say I really appreciated being on this panel with Frank because I one of the ways in which I feel disempowered is sort of changing the system and the, the laws and the context with which all of this is happening. So it's been great, Frank, to have your input on that higher level.
3: I think how I am drawn personally to this work um, Is probably just through my role as a faculty member and a professor as well. I really want to make the university a place that students, all students, feel like they belong. And, you know, we can't do that if there are um, students that are experiencing, which still happens, macro, micro, and atomic aggressions every day on our campus, whether it's in the classroom or in the dorm or in the cafeteria. Um, you know, these these subtle um insulting um and discriminating little actions, words, statements that I call microaggressions, that we call microaggressions, really do have an impact on students' everyday experience. And I know here at Movement is Life we're really focused on the patient experience, the provider experience, and the healthcare setting generally. Um And I'm really taking my experience as an educator from that setting and then kind of connecting it to um, a patient perspective. So I think cultivating awareness, um, both on uh, the behalf of people who are experiencing this and then kind of knowing what's happening to them is very powerful and important but also just cultivating awareness amongst, you know, our campus community, our um, organizational communities. Um, I feel like it's work that's really meaningful. And I'll echo Sarah that while I I kind of get frustrated at times about not being able to do more on the kind of big scale of systemic racism, um, like Frank, Thank you. <laughs> but uh, changing laws, right? That's really important. But it's equally important, I think, to change minds and attitudes and behaviors and and therefore um, hopefully, again, create
2: more sense of
3: belonging, more equity and inclusion.
2: Thank you. Ooh, and can I add to that, actually? Sure. Because um, also for our students, I mean, I could say all the same things that you have just said about the educational environment. And if we look at creating a more diverse workforce which we know is associated with better patient outcomes you know we need a welcoming environment in our educational settings and we need to make sure that our diverse students are excelling and having a positive experience and having um, the support that they need to get through and go out there and do wonderful things in the world instead of experiencing microaggressions and things that you know, instill doubt or um, are in the way of their progress. So Sir, I
0: so much love the analogy that you shared with us during the workshop um, about these sort of like uh, microaggressions that are, you know, subtle many times. But I think you use the terminology "paper cuts" and the accumulated effect, Christina. Yeah. Yes, Christina.
3: Yeah, that's and, that's and, a that's an analogy we use a lot. Yeah. And I I like that, and I
0: think our, our our listeners would would that would really resonate with them in terms of the spectrum of the type of transgressions that we're talking about. So they are those micro, macro, then the atomic ones. And if you could comment just a little bit on those paper cuts, right? Sure, And and then I think we could move into some of those more macro and atomic aggressions, which Frank does such a wonderful job of elevating in his book and would love for him to talk about his book and give us one or two examples there and the legal uh, remedies that might be available to us. So,
3: Christina, please. Sure. So, um, you know, these micro-level transgressions that we kind of label microaggressions, Uh, really are very similar to paper cuts Mm -hmm. because it's quite maybe a subtle action, word, comment, um, often unintentional. It could be intentional. I think that's where the intensity uh, really uh, moves it from a microaggression to a macro or or atomic aggression. Um, But a microaggression... Like a paper cut, you at, sometimes you, you, you barely notice that it happened, but throughout the day, it even moments after it continues to bother you. And all of a sudden, you know, you remember it because you're picking up something, and oh, it really hurts your finger. Or you know, you're washing something, and soap gets in there. So, its impact is, you know, longer than just this little teeny cut that you might think. Oh, well, you just kind of get over that. When you experience a microaggression, um, as, you know, a person of a marginalized group, so this is here we're talking about, um, it could be based on your race, ethnic identity, it could be based on your sexuality, it could be based on your gender, your uh, religion, age, right? age ability. Mm-hmm. Um, so these uh, these paper cuts, let's imagine that you were getting a paper cut, like every hour on different fingers. Like that would really start to become something that bothered you all the time regardless of what you're doing. And I think microaggressions operate the same way. Um, We know a lot through the research of, for example, of, you know, stereotype threat and implicit bias that there are all sorts of ways in which um, these, these types of transgressions just occupy and take up some of our mental and emotional energy all the time. And that impacts not only our performance in our job and life, it impacts our relationships, it impacts our well-being, um, especially if you're experiencing microaggressions regularly. Mm-hmm. So, And let alone macroaggressions, which would be, again, a much more maybe overt, intense, and intentional insult. Um in some way,
0: and I, I think um, Sarah, when you talked about um, the issues with the healthcare system and uh, the way the healthcare system is designed, that perpetuates uh, health disparities and health inequities, right? Those—that's an uh, atomic uh, aberration, right? And a, a really atomic type of transgression. And, Frank, if you could comment a little bit from your perspective and your book especially, because I think there are some wonderful case studies in your books that are terrific examples of macro, macro, and atomic aggressions.
1: So I titled the book uh, Health Care and Human Dignity because the more I reflected on the kinds of um, problems and and stories that were told both in case books as well as my my experience as a practicing lawyer, the more I realized that there were recurring incidences of people who had suffered serious emotional harm, and and, and it may not have been severe enough for that harm to have um, caused physical consequences, but it was serious enough to cause that kind of cut that um, Christina talked about, even though it was an emotional cut, and it presented a real challenge to the law. So I started out the book um, by talking about the experience of the Olympic gymnasts um, who were going through physical examinations with this physician um, who was physically assaulting them, and they were trying to get help. And, I, and, I, and what I recognize commonality of their situation with many people who suffer these kinds of indignities is it was a power differential, uh, a, a power disparity in terms of the interaction that, that one allowed the perpetrator to act in a certain way and, and, and made it difficult for the victim um, to respond. So many of these girls were, your parents were there. In the room when they were being examined, and they were looking around for help, but the power dynamic and the status of the um, physician uh, who was such that nobody really believed that this could really have been happening. And so I started trying to empathize and saying, you know, what could the law do? Mm-hmm. So with the, with the Olympic gymnast, the law has the ability to respond because of the physical harm and the egregiousness of the conduct. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the question was, how do you invoke it and make it more accessible, just like we talk about accessibility Mm -hmm. to health care? So that's one kind of problem to work on in terms of the structure. And then I followed that up with a comparison of a real case in which two uh, individuals who were same-sex couples Um, were not allowed to see each other in the hospital uh, because the hospital administrator said we have a policy that only when someone's this sick, only uh, people who are blood relatives or married are allowed to come in and see them. And this person then began to, to, to obviously experience real emotional distress and trying to find out because his partner... Was dying. Mm. And so the administrator blatantly said to him, This is Florida and this is an anti gay state, and by the time you get a lawyer, this will all be over anyhow, so do whatever you have to do. And this person then began to scramble to try to find a lawyer, and by the time he did, their partner had died. So even though I introduced these legal I mean, these factual situations that are really disturbing, uh, I wanted to point out during our session how hard it is for the law to really be an effective tool. And therefore, even though we needed to look carefully at reshaping the law in a way to make it more effective, that it was critical for people to understand that other means were essential and that's why I think sharing the podium and, and really following the discussion of what our experts on how do you f- respond, how do you make judgments about the difference between what you're going to respond to and what you're going to ignore was the critical aspect of this of these human relationships, and not simply we're trying to rely on the law.
0: Absolutely, mm-hmm. and that um, I think brings us to um, the uh, physical and mental impact of transgressions right be they micro macro or atomic so sarah maybe you could help our audience understand a little bit about that mental physical uh aspect of
2: it and how it shows up mm-hmm. so we recognize transgressions as a form of stress mm-hmm. and we know a lot about how stress affects us physiologically psychologically and socially sort of on in on all levels of our lives um, so it physiologically it affects all of our different body systems. it affects how our brains the connectivity of our brains it affects um, hormone regulation, it affects our immune system, our GI system, our GU systems our all, all of our different body systems, our musculoskeletal systems. you might feel muscle tension um, So it has these widespread physiological effects and it also is going to have psychological effects and part of that has to do with what's going on in your brain and what's going on with your hormones and all of that is going to affect how you feel and how you think. So it can affect the the clarity of your thinking, your ability to problem solve. So if you are in a very emergent situation. So if you're under high levels of stress, so think um, combat or being in a physically violent situation or a very dangerous situation, um, your brain just, you know, you don't have time for problem solving in those situations. So if you are regularly exposed to high, high Danger situations, your brain is going to invest a lot of time and energy in its ability, in your body's ability to respond quickly to an emergency situation, and it's going to invest less energy and connectivity into your ability to sit there and, you know, problem solve and think things through because that's not something you have time to do in an emergency situation. So if you have somebody with a history of stress, and again, transgressions are an example of stress, but there are numerous examples of stress throughout our lives, um, and all of those social determinants of health that we talk so much about at Movement Is Life are all examples of stressors, right? Right. Um, So if somebody has experienced a lot of stress and they have this improved ability to deal with things in an an emergency situation but maybe have spent less energy cultivating that problem-solving piece because they just have not gotten to a point where they have the space to do that, and you give that person a transgression versus somebody who has less experience maybe with these emergency situations, but a lot of time to sit there and have has developed their skill sets in problem solving, so someone who's been under less duress in mm-hmm. life, those two people are going to respond to the same stimulus in very different ways, mm-hmm. right? So I think what we need to understand as just fellow humans, but certainly as healthcare providers, is the way that a person is presents to us in a way that that a person responds to an interaction with us I mean it can be a transgression or it can just be something we said that's seemingly unrelated but is a trigger for that person for some reason that we just can't imagine right that if we understand this this physiology if we understand what stress does to our bodies and how it changes our bodies and how it shifts the way shifts our skill sets and the way that we sort of um, interact with the world and with our environment. It gives us a platform for understanding how somebody might react one way and somebody else might react another way, and I think that can largely replace basically us taking that personally. Why did this person snap at me, or why is this person so Mm -hmm. unengaged in what I'm saying, or why is this person not executing this awesome advice that I gave them as their healthcare provider? Right. Um, so instead of either us taking it personally, like this person's being a jerk, or this person is non-compliant, my uh, pet my, one of many pet peeves of mine. You know, instead of labeling a patient a particular way or labeling an interaction and taking it personally, it gives us a platform for really understanding. Hey, I don't know what this person's life trajectory is. I don't know why they're responding this way and what has contributed to their, you know, the, what, what, their, what kind of physiology they're coming mm-hmm. in um, to my office with. But I at least can entertain the notion that for whatever reasons, the way that a person re- is responding has something to do with their story, with their context, with their resources, with their relative level of safety in life. Mm -hmm. And instead of me taking it personally or me labeling a patient as, you know, noncompliant or unmotivated or like I can't help them if they don't help themselves, instead of digging into those kinds of narratives, we can, it gives us a platform for really understanding that maybe this is somebody where we need to build some resilience and, Um, that it may be somebody who is under a lot of stress or has a history of being under a lot of stress and they need some additional support and some additional resources.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it really um, struck home to me when you explained that to us in the in the workshop, uh, just the impact if you are in that sort of vicious cycle with the social determinants of health, the political determinants of health, and how that impacts your degree of, of or sense of safety. And that sense of safety is, is how you perceive whether the transgression is a, a, a threat or not, and, and what end of the spectrum that threat is. And that is also going to inform your your response so I I think your framework was just perfect and, Christine, if we could segue to you, the other thing I loved in the workshop was how you engaged the audience um, and set them up to really reflect upon a time when they had experienced a transgression, be it micro, macro, or atomic, and how it made them feel. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how why you selected that to sort of begin the engagement with the audience? How did you, why did you um, select that way to begin to engage? them?
3: Sure well I mean as kind of an educator I really believe in the power of not only um, you know a variety of kind of pedagogical approaches teaching approaches to a subject which is really kind of what we're doing in these workshops right we're sharing information we're teaching people are here to really learn and reflect Um, so I I am a visual learner and an experiential learner so for me um having an exercise just personally where i can put into action what i'm asked being asked to learn about is very helpful Mm -hmm. um i also think that part of the work that we're doing here is work on ourselves right Mm -hmm. so we have to always start here Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, how am i situated in this problem whether Mm -hmm. i'm trying to uh be part of the solution or realize that I'm actually part of the problem right? Mm -hmm. which I think is a harsh realization for some people Um, and asking participants to just reflect on their personal experience with the transgression I think is really powerful because um, we can all kind of stay in our heads about theorizing it, right, intellectualizing it, but then when you actually have to go back to wow, when did I experience this and how did that feel? It takes us to a different place. Absolutely. So. And
0: I would invite our listeners to sort of think that through as well. So what was your experience? How did it make you feel? Think about that. And we're going to segue into some of the um, uh, things that you we can each do as individuals to help us manage um, those feelings. I would like to just share before we move to that, that I thought that this whole workshop, bringing it to, a caucus, a conference like this, I don't know outside of my workplace when we've done all kind of equity, inclusion, and diversity work, and you've had those types of sessions. I don't know in a large national, international conference where you actually talk about microaggressions and and, and microaggressions, and everybody has experienced them. Everybody has. Uh, Whether you are a um, white female operating in a healthcare environment and patients and colleagues refer to you as Michelle, whereas there's a, a white male physician, and he's always referred to as uh, a Dr. McClellan, right, or a Dr. Winger, or a Dr. Jimenez. And so those things uh, happen. They are real, and uh, they, have an in, uh, they have an impact. Uh, but we don't get to talk about them in settings like this and break them down and debrief them and share strategies for addressing them. So maybe if we could invite our, our, our colleagues here at the table to share some mm-hmm. of those things that you can do in the moment or later
3: I'll start off really with you know one or two I mean I think it's uh, in the moment um, I think it's really important to just take a deep breath and to um, not feel like you have to respond at that moment Um, maybe it's a minute later that you respond maybe it's a day or a week later that you respond um, I do encourage people to respond to microaggressions in some way, uh, even if it's not directly con- uh, comb—okay, start of combative
0: <laughs> or confronting. Confronting,
3: the- mm-hmm. even if it's not directly confronting the person who's perpetrated the microaggression. Mm-hmm. You know maybe letting their supervisor know or at least talking with friends and colleagues about what's happened so you can process it and you're not experiencing it alone. Um, so, those are all things that we in our workshop talked about as building resilience, um, you know, having a strong network of relationships, uh, having a good sense of um, you know balance in your life, whether that's through uh, you know, physical activity, exercise. A lot of people get back to nature and really feel a sense of grounding doing that. Um, something that I really appreciated working with Sarah is that um, I came to understand how many of these practices, those are just a few, you, you all can talk about others in a minute, but so many of those practices that build resilience Aren't just ways that we cope with and respond to these stressful situations. They're they're actually building us up. It's like a muscle that we're strengthening, and they create a kind of protective barrier for us when we encounter not just transgressions but all sorts of stress in our life. So, Sarah actually taught me that, and I and maybe you want to you can talk more about protective and uh, factors. Because I think that and how those that's really important in these stressful situations. Sure,
2: thanks. Um, so yeah, if we think about stressors sort of being one side of the seesaw and kind of weighing us down and making us vulnerable, vulnerable to health issues, psychological and social, you know, there's a weight on us for in, in, that crosses all of those areas and stress can break us down across those areas. There are also protective factors that protect us and build us up and help us cope and help us get through stressful situations sort of unharmed or at least um, without any kind of serious deleterious effects. I shouldn't say unharmed entirely. But um, those protective factors, like Christina was talking about, are social connection is huge, right? Having enough resources, having a sense of safety, and there's so much that goes into all of these things. Um, feeling like you're supported wherever you are, so you know, at work, at home, within your community, what, whatever we we are in many spaces. Um, And I think what's important is sort of this idea of the seesaw. So you have these things that make you vulnerable and put you at risk, and then you have things that build you up and make you robust, these protective factors. And if you accumulate, you know, if the balance between those things tips, you can be at this place where you start to see some of these physiological changes that can be harmful and can lead to health problems you can see some of these physiological and social effects that can also lead to health problems and quality of life you know it can diminish your quality of life and so as we're looking at tipping that seesaw you know it'd be great if we could just get rid of all the stress and we have some we are empowered to some extent to manage stressors and diminish stressors but we're often not empowered to get rid of the stress to the extent that we need to, and so our other tool—and I think this is a tool that's just so underutilized, certainly in healthcare—but I, I would venture across industries, is this opportunity to really build up our protective factors. So if there's a certain amount of stress that ain't going anywhere, how are we going to improve our coping skills, improve our resilience, and? there are an equal number of ways of doing that. So, you know, you can look at all these stressors and think, oof, God, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, that's problematic. You know, we're, we're never going to get out of that. Um, but there's an equal number of ways to build yourself up. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities that we can take as fellow humans in whatever role, but certainly within our role as healthcare providers to help create safety for people. I mean, so this gets into the theme of this year's conference, which is community, right? So we can be a support to somebody else. We can be a safe space for somebody else. An ally ally for somebody else? Yes, exactly, an ally. Um, We can create positive medical experiences instead of harmful medical experiences. That all builds resilience. We can help people learn what they need to learn to have the tools they need we can help them because we all know there's a giant gap between knowing something and executing something so we can teach people things but then we can also mentor and guide and support as that new knowledge transitions into new decisions and new behaviors yeah. um and I think that we have this huge potential to be somebody else's resilience and to be somebody else's positive factor, and that's within all you know within our roles as family members, as friends, as community members, as co-workers, and as healthcare providers.
0: Absolutely, and I would just add to that. Um, I know Christina, uh, when we first started this conversation about tools and how do you respond, she said, "Just take a breath." Just step back, just pause for a few. And I know we talked about exercise, but movement, breathing, um, so important um, to managing the distress, because I think these types of transgressions are distress. We all have some level of stress in our lives, but there's good stress and then there's bad stress. And these type of transgressions, is bad stress and it's distressful. Right? Um, but I do think the power of movement is certainly at the top of the list in terms of remedies.
2: Well, I do, as a physical therapist, I of course have to comment on mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what I teach my students is exercise and being fit. Like, improved fitness makes all your body systems work better. It makes all of them neurology, your neurological system, your immune system, your digestive system all of your body systems work better not just musculoskeletal so we know that when you exercise you get stronger and you get better cardiovascular fitness but it makes all your body systems work better and it better prepares you to meet whatever the demands of your life are um you know
3: what i also learned this christina is that doing the walk the exercise getting out in nature I mean, I learned from this um, workshop, working with you all, collaborating, is that it's also building that resilience muscle. And it's helping, um, well, me personally, but I think a lot of people, even though we're going out there to do it for maybe some physical activity, it's actually creating um, you know, mental and emotional strengthening that's actually protecting us and de-stressing us, but preparing us for more stressors the next day. This is what makes me think about that, Uh, the PT or physician getting out the, you know, prescription pad and and writing out, like, have a conversation with your best friend, like, twice a week. (laughs) You know, take the time to do that. (laughs) Or go out and walk your dog, you know, (laughs) even if it's
2: around the block once a
3: day. Um, Because we need that to build our health absolutely.
2: And I want to link that back to what you were saying about paper cuts, right? So if stress is taking these paper cuts, we can have whatever the positive version of a paper cut would be. Like we can do these small little things. They don't have to be huge. We can have these little resilience and uh, coping skills and resilience-building things that we just do in little small doses all day long, and they also accumulate and make an impressive impact. Yes.
0: In addition, I was thinking back to um, another of our movement is Life Colleagues and esteemed um, executive committee members, Dr. Augustus White, um, joined us for the workshop but was not able to be here in person for the podcast, Um, offered, uh, we did a recording um, of his uh, comments and presentation and shared it at the workshop, and he had some really sage advice for us in terms of how to respond uh, to a transgression. And um, one of the things that he said was to, you know, remain professional, right, uh, poised, and decide whether or not it's the rock to die on, right? And, and I think that's so, so important because there is that power differential, especially in the educational um, environment and especially in medical schools. So there's so many... Um, 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 outcomes um, that are not so good that could could happen. So you really do have to pick your moment and 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 do it in the appropriate way. And I would just like to mention as well, Dr. White's um, latest book entitled "Overcoming: Lessons in Triumphing." over adversity and the power of our common humanity, getting back to Frank and his publication um, in terms of human dignity.
3: Yeah, I remember Dr. White also mentioned operating within your sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. And it really does kind of get back to um, what Frank was saying as well, because we have, you know, we might have a lot of thoughts and energy about the way that we want to change the system, But it's really hard as one person to change the system. So if we operate within our sphere of influence, then maybe we're not changing the system, but we're making these, you know, impacts in our community Mm -hmm. in these positive ways that perhaps they'll accumulate and over time, right, change change a broader system.
0: Absolutely. I would ask if there are any um, um, concluding comments um, that anyone would like to, to to share. I I hope that our um, audience, our listeners, have gotten a sense of what our workshop was all about. What were some of the high points of, uh, of it, and what we were trying to convey in terms of these types of transgressions and how to address them from a legal perspective, as well as what we can each do personally and collectively to protect ourselves and to help each other. But any um, additional comments would be most welcome.
1: So I would just like to like, emphasize the challenge that um, Dr. White made to us of um, trying to seek joy, that we don't want to just survive um, these situations, but we want to survive them in a way that allows us to, to experience joy. And, and I think it's important to keep in mind that these microaggressions particularly um, occur sometimes in situations where you're, going to have them reoccur because it's a relationship or employment status or something like that. And other times, they're simply uh, chance encounters. Mm -hmm. I think that pausing and breathing is helpful for survival in all those situations, but in situations where it's an ongoing structural thing, you have to think about how do I use resources to change the structure because otherwise I'm going to be continue to be a victim. And I think that's a part of seeking joy, yeah. is to say I've, I've, I've done something to help myself. An
2: advocate for yourselves, mm-hmm. Yes. And I think, so I'll add, that was beautifully said, mm-hmm. and I'll add to that also helping others seek joy, so that idea that you can be the source of Resilience. You can be the source of de-stressing. You can be a source of um, support for other people. And that also feels good for you, too, right? That, so I think there's healing for yourself and supporting others.
3: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll end with a kind of final thought that we had in the workshop, which was just about start where you are. So wherever it is that you feel like you need to kind of work on in terms of building your own resilience so that you can start to not just survive but thrive and seek joy, um, you know, don't be hard on yourself about it. Just take those small steps, and uh, you'll see progress.
0: Wonderful way uh, to end our time together, and I just want to thank you again on behalf of Movement is Live. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: I'd also like to add for our listeners, I've referenced um, Dr. White's uh, recording that we shared in our workshop. We're going to end our podcast this afternoon, close it out with um, Dr. White's uh, recording that we mentioned earlier.
4: Pierce is the person who coined the phrase microaggression, and I would just like to uh, honor him and share with you also the fact that he was a mentor and a dear friend uh, during his time here at Harvard. Microaggression. Uh, microaggression is a statement, an action, or an incident regarded as as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. Large-scale or overt aggression toward those of another race, culture, or gender, ethnic minority, or marginalized group. All come under this particular classification. Here's an example also of a macroaggression, which is uh, a bit more direct, uh, not at all subtle, and sort of in-your-face, if you will. And a color sign saying this is for colored only. And uh, racial microaggression is uh, a color sign saying Jim Crow, racism, segregation. And that is really a macroaggression. But atomic aggression takes it to another level. And I just want to share an um, uh, example of an atomic aggression. Uh, I was on, this is a quote from uh, an individual who was, as it will explain, uh, working on rounds in Harvard Medical School, one of the Harvard hospitals. I was on service last night. It was busy with several admissions. The patient really wanted a cup of coffee, and I asked the uh, uh, attendant uh, to, to make it if she-slash-he forgot so. Forgot. So, I went back and made the coffee myself and brought it to the patient. The patient said, you know, you should be grateful I didn't call you a nigger like my sister would have done. Now, obviously, this particular doctor was an African-American female that, uh, uh, resulted in this particular unfortunate atomic aggression is what i like to call it. Um, so here's another example. This is an incident reported by a student, uh, and another atomic aggression. And it basically, I will just paraphrase it, uh, a woman, uh, who was, uh, referred to in a sexual context Uh, about her her sexual presence, and that a joke was made, uh, and it made the woman on the service, who was rotating on the service, uh, very self-conscious to hear these uh, sexual innuendos jokingly commented on uh, about the patient. And he uh, even said, quote, he wanted to take one nurse into the back room and slap her around some. Totally an atomic-type microaggression, if you will. Um, So there's also uh, an opportunity in this dynamic, which is important, uh, to have some humanitarian pushback for social justice. And uh, just a reminder, this is reminiscent of Michelle Obama, during the uh, campaign for presidency uh, of her husband, Barack Obama, where she uh, recognized and uh, pointed out that as things got more uh, negative and more hostile and more down and evil and mean, uh, she would campaign and and conduct herself uh, to get ever more humanitarian. Uh, in her activities and so forth. And this would be her pushback for uh, social injustice would be social justice. And here are some things. Diane Goodman uh, is a woman who's written a wonderful book with many examples of how to engage and pushback with various types of stereotype activity. And she says, give informal uh, information share share your own experience and your own uh, differences that you were involved with, and the alternative perspectives that can be offered other than those that uh, are of a, uh, a nature which could be considered micro or uh, macroaggressions. And one of the things to do is to promote empathy and say, oh, my goodness, uh, I wonder how how, how you would feel if someone said something like that about you or some of your loved ones or your friend or your partner or your child. Uh, we don't want to make those kinds of comments uh, are about our patients. Uh, they relate to our patients because this is a, a, a microaggression. It's undesirable in any interaction, but certainly when you have the role of a caregiver. Uh, so it's good to express your feelings and say, you know, uh, um, I, I, uh, I noticed the comment you made to that patient and, and, I I'd like to show you and tell you why it was offensive to me and made me uncomfortable. Um, and you can go on and say to, to your colleague, that, uh, you can say that it's, uh, it's something that, uh, is offensive to me and it makes me feel, uh, out of, out of place and unwanted and unrespected and, uh, therefore... Not good. Uh, as we try to work together here in this hospital setting, one can go even further. Diane Goodman suggests here, and even go so far as to say, you know, I um, uh, here's here's the way it made me feel. Made me feel, and uh, made me feel very uh, insecure, and as though I was being uh, pushed to feel bad about myself. And and I don't feel bad about myself, and nor do I feel bad about uh, this particular patient that you are demeaning. So you can use humor, you can exaggerate the comment, use uh, some ridiculous uh, exaggeration or even some gentle uh, sarcasm. And a good point, though, you can introduce all of these rebuttal-type remarks with a... um, uh, a sentence that says, uh, allow me to respectfully share uh, an opinion uh, with you. We are all professionals here trying to do a good job. And uh, please uh, let me make this particular comment about what just happened. Um, and we need to behave uh, as as professional individuals. Another response that she says is, oh, my goodness, just burned out. That really hurt me. I don't know how it made the patient feel, uh, that nurse feel, but, but it really, it really hurt me. And I wonder if the hospital administration would condone this kind of behavior. Uh, I, I doubt it. In fact, I'm sure it will not. Uh, and uh, we should be careful that we not uh, risk making our patients be uh, harmed or feel bad when we, when our goal is to make them feel good. Uh, how much pushback? This requires a a, a lot of good judgment and uh, goodwill and uh, experience and good luck, really. Do you start a fight? I don't mean even a fist fight, but certainly not a fist fight, but do you start a verbal battle? Um, Do you risk your job by doing that? Uh, Might you risk your job by doing that? Might you lower your grade if you're a student on rounds and uh, the professor observes you doing it to someone else or to him or her? Um, no, uh, you don't want to do any of those things in that circumstance. And you want to exercise equanimity. And let me recommend a, 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 an article, which is not in our handout, but an article which says, uh, it's called Acronymitas. The article is written by Sir William Osler, the distinguished professor at Johns Hopkins many years back. Uh, Aquanimitas is the name and it's, uh, the translation is, uh, the translation of the Latin is uh, equanimity. Uh, and it means to be cool, to be consistent, to be relaxed. Oh, so please, here's, here's the advice that we encourage you to do. Develop your resilience. You can improve your resilience. And there are many things in the literature and many of the references we've offered Look at them, those that you resonate with, read them, think about them, and please take it on good faith. you can significantly enhance your resilience. Uh, And at the same time, then, we can do advanced both strategies. You can have a pushback strategy and you can have a resilience strategy. And this is a good, healthy way to go forward. And this is what we encourage you to do. So... To repeat again, Uh, yes, push back, push back strategically. Uh, Don't get in big fight if you can avoid that. Uh, Do it uh, with respect. Introduce your comments with respect. Uh, And here's a a book, one of the books here. This book summarizes uh, evaluation of uh, Vietnam refugees and the so-called famous Hanoi Hilton years ago and uh, they had post-traumatic stress syndrome. And Dr. Southwick and Charney uh, studied a number of these individuals and came out with about 10 characteristics that uh, constituted those who had resilience, those who survived better. And uh, that is uh, included uh, such things as exercise, if you will, uh, during these difficult times. So please review. Uh, this book and others that are suggested for resilience enhancement. Uh, so let's do both. Let's push back uh, against these microaggressions, macroaggressions, and even uh, a ton of aggressions. And uh, let's also work to enhance our resilience, and we have plenty of references to do that. Um, So, uh, as you do these things, you will be acting within your sphere of influence, and you have a strong impact, and you make a strong contribution through your sphere of influence. So, as you study uh, microaggressions and how to address them, think also about your sphere of influence. Because you're not going to change racism or change the realities of uh, healthcare disparities by winning arguments or debates or uh, conflict and competition of your wit with people involved in microaggressions and macroaggressions. But you can change it and you can make a difference as you improve your your, uh, spheres of influence. Your resilience and your spheres of influence uh, will help you to adjust and improve uh, that situation significantly. Please see that uh, Robert F. Kennedy um, greatly uh, supported uh, working in one sphere of influence. That is the influence we can have around ourselves uh, impacting others uh, will combine and will greatly uh, have the strength combining small ripples will be like a, a, a positive tsunami, if you will, of strength and the favor of uh, progress in humanitarianism. So please consider that characteristic if you would. And uh, another way of thinking about this is that uh, the pushback is sort of in the spirit of Malcolm X, and the um, uh, humanitarianism and the Michelle Obama going to a higher level uh, will give us a sense of um, what we can do by following Dr. King. And Dr. King, who says, he wouldn't want us all in medicine to think we can and should be humanitarian role models. And he recognized that the arc of the universe moves and bends slowly. The arc of the universe bends slowly, uh, but it bends in the direction of righteousness. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Got it right that time. So thank you. Thank you so very much for your attention. Respectfully submitted, uh, Gus White.